Hello, Gastropod listeners. We have a great episode for you today. It's one of our favorites. I know we say that all the time, but we really do love this one. And it's especially timely for our American listeners who may well be sitting down to a Thanksgiving meal that includes lots of delicious and indigenous American foods. Corn, cranberries, turkey. There's a story behind Thanksgiving, of course, but there's an even deeper story that we tell this episode. The story of Native American cuisine what it was, what happened to it, and why that matters. In this episode, we highlight the work of a lot of super interesting people in the Native community. And if you stick around to the credits, we'll have the update on what some of those people have been up to since our episode first aired. Enjoy! Yep, that's your cedar bergamot maple tea. And does it have particular, you know, powers? Oh yeah, it'll make you feel really good. <laughs> is cedar is cedar used traditionally for anything in particular? Or? Yeah, it's used for all kinds of stuff. Like here, we braise meat with it. Um, it's used as like a lot of seasoning. And then also people use it in the wintertime as a tea like um, to help prevent um, from getting like flus, colds, things like that. So um, it's also burned sort of like as an incense, like a smudge. So. Cheers. Cheers. I'd never tasted cedar in food before. I'd also never had that bergamot. It's not the perfumey citrus from Italy, but a wildflower in the mint family. It's also known as bee balm. Yeah, me neither. Okay, pop quiz people. What do all of these ingredients, the cedar, the maple, and the wild bergamot, what do they have in common? Apart from being an RT, I mean. Anyone? Yeah, you're probably not going to come up with the answer here. These are all Native American ingredients brewed into a tea for us in Minnesota. We, of course, are Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. So this was a delicious tea with Native American ingredients, and we washed it down with a delicious meal made with Native American ingredients. And you know what's weird? I've lived in the U.S. for 15 years now, but before we had that meal... I would not have been able to describe traditional Native American cuisine and flavors at all. But why is that? That's what we're asking in today's episode. We'll explore the history, why it is that basically none of us have ever tasted Native American cuisine. And we'll meet the people who are trying to change that today. Not just for us, more importantly, for Native Americans themselves. They have some of the highest rates of diet-related diseases like diabetes in the country. Could a return to a Native diet help? This episode is supported in part by the Burroughs Welcome Fund for our coverage of biomedical research, and our travel was supported in part by the Fund for Environmental Journalism. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. The voice you heard earlier is Tashia Hart. She forages wild foods for Chef Sean Sherman. My name is Sean Sherman. I am the owner and CEO of The Sous Chef. I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation, which is in South Central South Dakota. Um, it is the third largest native reservation in the United States. You might have heard of Sean. He's getting all kinds of attention right now. He's just funded his first restaurant on Kickstarter. In fact, it's the most backed 
restaurant project ever on Kickstarter. He's had a food truck, Tatanka truck, and a catering company for a few years. His new Minneapolis restaurant will be the first to serve all indigenous foods from Minnesota and the Dakotas. The meal we enjoyed, that cedar tea, smoked turkey, hominy, wild rice, and a wild sumac and sorrel pesto, that was a taste of the kind of foods Sean will be serving at his new restaurant. But he didn't grow up eating like this. You know, on Pine Ridge Reservation, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was only one grocery store on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which is a huge area, you know, to, to have only one food source. And we had to spend a lot of time either going into Rapid City or down into Nebraska to other towns to go to some of the grocery stores. A lot of what Sean and his family ate came through the food distribution program on Indian reservations. That's a federal program that distributes food to low-income Native Americans. So we you know, had the famous government cheese and cereals and various canned foods. But, um, you know, we did have some traditional pieces here and there. Um, when I look back, you know, we did collect a lot of choke cherries out in the wild, and we did collect a lot of timsala, which is a wild prairie turnip. You may never have eaten what Sean calls, quote, famous government cheese, but it's common on the reservation. It's basically bulk commodity cheese that the government buys to prop up the dairy industry and then gives away. But Sean doesn't want the next generation to grow up eating canned and boxed processed foods like he did. He thinks it's well past time for Native American foods to have their moment on our tables. Sean Sherman is part of a growing movement today, a rebirth of indigenous North American cuisine. But here's my question. Why does it need a rebirth? I mean, why was it lost in the first place? When various waves of colonization occurred, it was really about seizing that land and its, its natural resources, which meant increasingly that Native peoples were pushed off their traditional lands where, you know, they harvested game, where they grew crops, where they harvested their traditional, you know, medicines and foods. And so really what that began to do is completely destroy their their traditional food systems and the way that they fed themselves and their ability to really be self-sustaining. That's Crystal Echohawk of Echohawk Consulting. She's the co-author of a new report on the history and future of Native American food called Feeding Ourselves. And in the report, she gets into exactly how the traditional Native American food system was lost. I would give the example of my own tribe. Uh, the Pawnee resided within lands kind of around Nebraska and, and Kansas, and we were farmers. Uh, we, we hunted buffalo and game, um, but we were also farmers, and we had our crops and, and our corn, and also we harvested our traditional medicines. So in 1876, when we were forcibly relocated to Oklahoma, you're talking about two different entirely geographic regions and agricultural zones, right, and climate. And and so our traditional food systems, the, the types of crops that we grew, um, the seeds that we have were no longer really viable in Oklahoma with, with a very different climate. Crystal says that relocation destroyed her tribe's traditional foodways. In general, putting Native Americans on reservations didn't just damage their ability to farm, it also really inhibited their ability to hunt. Basically, it made it almost impossible to follow their traditional lifestyles. And in doing so, and in restricting movement and activity, really began to make Native people uh, reliant on the government rations that went into those reservations that were oftentimes spoiled and rotten food, um, but began to completely shift Native Americans' diets where it began to be flour and sugar and lard 
in, in other types of things that were not in our traditional diets. It wasn't just a matter of people no longer knowing how to farm their crops in new climates or knowing which animals to hunt. Native Americans were moved onto some of the worst lands available and then given some of the worst food. On top of that, children were forced into boarding schools and kept from speaking their own languages. So a lot of traditional knowledge about food was lost. And all of that had a huge impact, not just on what Native Americans ate, but on their health and well-being overall. So I think that had an incredible and devastating psychological damage to Native peoples wherever they were. I mean, you're talking about Native American people who had sustained themselves. And, and I think what that is devastating in terms of what it does to the psyche, right, to take away that ability to sustain yourself um, and to make yourself very dependent on your conqueror. But the change in diet and lifestyle did have tangible, really enormous effects, not just on indigenous people's minds, but on their bodies as well. From the health standpoint, when you completely shift a diet away, from an incredibly healthy diet of game meat and traditional crops and medicines that people relied on to these processed forms of food and, and foods that are very much detrimental to health, such as you know lard and flour and sugar, what we began to see is the onset of, of diabetes and other types of diet-related diseases that you know really by the 50s, 60s, 70s had began to explode in which today we have what one um, Native American public health official recently declared is it's not only a public health crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis. With now one out of two um, Native American children predicted to develop type 2 diabetes. One out of two. In her report, Crystal describes diabetes as the new smallpox. It's a chilling image, but given those numbers, it's not an exaggeration. And that's not all. 80% of Native American people today are either overweight or obese. Um, and we have some of the, the highest numbers of, of cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer down the line. You know, these are all attributable to diet-related diseases and chronic diseases that could be preventable with a healthy diet. Crystal says that the word for diabetes didn't even exist in Native languages when the Europeans first arrived. Today, Native Americans are among the poorest people in the country. Nearly 20% of homes on reservations lack even basic kitchen necessities, running water, a refrigerator, or a stove. And according to Crystal, virtually all of Indian country is a food desert. There are no nearby grocery stores, so people often have to drive for hours to buy fresh food. But today, Crystal is cautiously optimistic. I'm happy to, to see the great movement, I think, that is taking place in Indian country where people are really recognizing that the time is now that we need to take back our traditional food systems. Crystal told us there's a movement to bring back traditional Native American foodways. So we went out to Minnesota to visit some of the farms and chefs and activists who are making this movement happen. Okay, my name's Diane Wilson, and we are at Dream a Wild Health Farm. My name is Rebecca Yoshino, and I'm the director here at Wojupi Tribal Gardens. Diane and Rebecca are our guides today to growing traditional Native foods. Wojupi and Dream of Wild Health are both about a 30-minute drive away from Minneapolis on opposite sides of town. Rebecca grew up on an organic farm, but she's not Native American herself. The local Shakopee Sioux community actually headhunted her because they wanted to start a farm. We broke ground here in 2010. It was born out of a health impulse. Over at Dream of Wild Health, Diane is a master gardener who's a member of the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. She started off as a volunteer at the farm and then took over as director a few years ago. And the farm started as a program of Petawakan Tipi. 
and that was a St. Paul-based nonprofit that provided transitional housing for Native people in recovery. And out of that work, the clients were asking for a way to reconnect with the land and with traditional foods because that's such a, an important part of Native culture. So it started as a tiny little garden in 1998. Then we received a gift of uh, very old, precious seeds from Cora Baker, a Potawatomi elder, in 2000. And then in 2005, we we purchased this 10-acre farm. And then we've been here ever since, building programs for youth and helping to restore the land. We're going to come back to those precious seeds. But first things first, I was curious, what exactly do you grow on a Native American farm? Rebecca and Diane walked us around. They're growing a lot of the foods you'd find at any farmer's market. Bell peppers and carrots and onions and the like. These are the typical vegetables that any healthy community might want to eat. But, and this is what makes them really unique, they're also growing indigenous crops. Some of them are foods that are very familiar. Corn, squash, and beans. But Rebecca and Diane are growing varieties that you probably haven't seen or heard of before. We are growing a um, Meskwaki flint corn that we received from a Meskwaki seed keeper a few years ago. We grow a Ho-Chunk red flower corn. We grow this Dakota yellow corn. We grow an Oneida white hominy corn, Potawatomi lima beans, uh, Cherokee Trail of Tears pole beans, Arikara yellow beans, um, Hidatsa Shield figure beans, Geteo Kosamin, Lakota squash. And it's not just the varieties. The way they're growing the corn, squash, and beans, that's a little different too. Before coming here, I had never grown a Three Sisters garden, and so that's been an adventure. Three Sisters? Yep. So in a perfect uh, Three Sisters garden, you grow corn, squash, and beans together. And the pole beans provide an anchor for the corn, and the corn provides uh, stability and a trellis for the beans. You grow squash around the corn and beans, and that provides um, shade and uh, weed suppression. It helps um, create a more temperate environment for the soil so it doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold, retains moisture. Uh, The beans help fix nitrogen and add fertility to the soil. And then when eaten all together, you have all the components for a complete meal. So here we have a Potawatomi lima bean growing on our Dakota yellow corn here. We couldn't taste the squash or corn, but we did eat some beans right off the stalk. These are immature, but I will pop this one open to see if we have any of its exquisite color. Probably not quite yet. Nope, they are still little lima beans. But if you try them in this stage of development, they're small and green. Please do. They're incredibly sweet. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. It's like candy. Yes. It's like sweet and green. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. A normal farmer can order their seeds online, but Diane and Rebecca can't just go to seeds.com and get Potawatomi beans or Dakota yellow corn. And that's what makes these seeds so rare and special. To have survived all these generations, they had to be saved. Remember how Diane told us that a gift of seeds from a woman named Cora Baker was the inspiration to start a farm at Dream of Wild Health? Well, I heard about the seeds back in 2000, and as soon as I heard that Dream of Wild Health was growing out these seeds, I knew I had to come and get involved. 
when you come here. You know that these seeds are special, and to feel that that understanding when you're holding them that these were seeds held by your ancestors. You know, these are seeds that have been grown out by by the families that came before you, and it was their work, their sacrifice that protected these seeds, sometimes through horrific events. Sometimes even the name of the plant tells you about the suffering that went into saving it. Uh, this is our Cherokee Trail of Tears pole bean. Um, these beans were a part of the Cherokee Trail of Tears, and there are many accounts of women um, sowing seeds into the hems of their skirts and bringing many, many foods on their journey west. So it is an honor to grow out some of these seeds, and you'll note that many of those varieties that did make that journey, their names now start, or their English names start with Cherokee Trail of Tears. The Trail of Tears is a horrific part of American history. It was part of President Andrew Jackson's policy to remove Indians from their native lands. In 1838 and 39, the Cherokee were forced to migrate from their homelands in the southeast, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, to what's now Oklahoma. During the forced march, hunger, disease, and exhaustion killed more than a quarter of all the people on that walk. 4,000 people died. The only reason we have some of these seeds is that families made that decision sometimes in the matter of moments under severe pressure to protect their seeds because they knew they knew that they were going to need seeds wherever it was they were going to end up so uh, on the Cherokee Trail of Tears removal for example those seeds somehow survived that removal and that means that even when families were starving that these seeds were protected so that there would always be food. And same with the Dakota removal. There were families that protected enough seeds, no matter what, that we now have food today. And the seeds that Native Americans saved on forced relocations like these, even while they were starving, those seeds have been handed down by families and communities over the generations. And one of the women who helped preserve these seeds was Cora Baker. So... Um, Cora was a a gardener, a traditional gardener who lived by, um, she lived in the Wisconsin Dells, and she farmed and gardened all her life. And she used to grow the Indian corn, she called it, and she would hang it up. She'd braid it and hang it up outside her barn to dry. And people would come by, and they'd stop to visit, and they'd see her corn, and they would give her seeds. So she ended up with this beautiful collection of seeds from all over this region, but some from as far away as uh, the southwest. We ha- she had Hopi black turtle beans in her collection. She also had Cherokee Trail of Tears corn. And so when she was getting ready to pass in her 90s, her kids didn't want the responsibility. So she heard about Dream of Wild Health, and she wrote a letter and said, I have prayed and prayed that Indian people would get back to gardening. And she really believed that these seeds and getting back to traditional foods was the way to rebuild health in the community. So she sent her collection here as a gift. And so we've been um, taking care of that gift, protecting it and growing it out since 2000. Diane took us downstairs in the farmhouse to show us her treasured seed collection. This is the Cree corn. How different it looks. Yeah, yeah the really colors different. are so different. That's reddish. The other one yeah. is kind of purplish. This is red Look and blue. Oh, yeah, I love this. So this is part of the Dakota corn. So just look at those vibrant colors. The Mandan blue corn. Oh, that's a popcorn. Bear Island. 
Amanda in red, amber chip. Diane and Rebecca and other native growers have joined together to form an Indigenous Seed Keepers Alliance to bring these seeds forward to the next generation. The whole history of these seeds, how rare they are, the fact that they're this powerful remaining connection to Native Americans' original homelands, it definitely inspires a lot of what both Rebecca and Diane do. So what we found is that we tapped into what is a very deep need that people have to to connect with traditional foods and and also a very deep passion among people for working with these seeds. When you get hooked into seed work, it is definitely a passionate commitment. I was going to say, you know, it's like a cult, but that goes... <laughs> definitely, it brings out the geek in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca doesn't have her own Cora Baker at Wajupi Farm. Instead, they've gotten seeds from a variety of places, gifts from other tribal communities, for instance, and even seeds saved at the University of Minnesota. The university has also helped both Rebecca and Diane with something else. So we've learned all about corn condoms, which is just hilarious to the kids when we're talking about this. Yes, Diane said corn condoms, and we'll be back to learn all about them ourselves right after these words from our sponsors. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So, back to corn condoms. They're important because without them, these rare indigenous varieties will interbreed with the GMO or industrial varieties growing on nearby farms. And that means that we have to hand pollinate our seeds because pollen can travel up to three miles. So it's very labor intensive for us to do that work. But for in order to protect the genetic integrity of these seeds, we have to hand pollinate. Rebecca walked over to some ears of corn to show us how it works. They put paper bags like little paper lunch bags on top of the tassels of corn. And we wait for the pollen to drop. 
And when the pollen drops, it starts dying within 15 minutes. And it can't be too hot, and it can't get wet, so it's very particular. And then we gather all of the live pollen from the bags every day, and we combine it all. Then they go back and dust that pollen on the new baby corn silks, and then they staple the paper bag condoms over the top again to protect the ear as it grows. This bag will remain on the ear of corn until we harvest next month. They have to do the same hand pollination thing with squash too, including one of Rebecca's favorite varieties. We grow out a squash called um, Gete Okosamin, which means cool old squash in Ojibwe. This is a squash that has actually become quite renowned in the seed-saving and indigenous seed-saving community. It is a cucurbit maxima. It is a Hubbard-type squash. It is very cool and long. It looks like almost like a orange and green canoe. Yeah, check yeah. this out. Wow, look at that. The canoe-like cool old squash and the colored corns, those are rare varieties of foods that are still common today. But then there were all sorts of crops I'd never eaten. Juneberries and wild plums and choke cherries and tiny, tiny fragrant elderberries. Growing all these native varieties is really important to Diane and Rebecca and the communities they serve. But it's also really hard because a lot of the traditional knowledge about how to grow them has been lost. Some things they can learn from elders, but some things they have to figure out pretty much from scratch. There's a whole lot of um, trial and error that's, that happens now. Diane says they have to build a new relationship with each new seed. So there's this long, years-long process that goes into rebuilding those relationships. So that's where we're at. We're, we're in the midst of that process. Rebecca's tried and failed at two crops that the elders want the farm to grow, butterfly weed and wild prairie turnips. There's not a lot of research that's out there on some of these foods, so we've been doing some experimenting. We've been trying to work on cultivating um, prairie turnips, for example, timsala for a few years um, and have not managed to do it successfully yet, but we'll continue to, to work on that. It's a traditional um, turnip that grows out in the prairie <laughs> that, that uh, many of the elders from this community and other Dakota communities and Lakota communities um, ate traditionally. But um, I don't know of any farm or organization that's been able to cultivate it successfully yet. And as if the loss of traditional knowledge and the displacement from their original homelands, as if that didn't make it hard enough to grow these native crops, there's another challenge. And then things that worked 100 years ago in a climate 100 years ago might not work in, in today's climactic conditions. So, Yep, there's also climate change. Well, we're seeing how far we can stretch the limits of um, the crops that we're growing here, and we're taking note on what performs in excessive heat, excessive drought, excessive moisture. So with climate change, and we were just talking about this with the kids in our program, we have to be growing those seeds out. And especially if they have been in storage for any length of time, they're not adapting to the conditions that are changing out here. So for those seeds to remain viable, we have to be growing them. So there are a lot of challenges. There's the trial and error involved in figuring out how to grow ancient seeds. There's a changing climate. On top of all that, Rebecca and Diane have to contend with a change in tastes. So that opens up a whole nother question. Because, you know, palates have changed over the years. And especially if you've grown up on um, corn the way it's grown now, it's very, very sweet. So what we realized was if 
you know, our our true work is to grow these seeds out and return them as foods to our community. But in order for us to do that, we have to figure out, do people still want to eat this? Because if it's changed so much that it's not appealing to you, then that's that's an issue no matter how how nutritious it is. The other piece of this is that some of these foods are no longer what people are expecting. They're not the first thing that comes to mind, even when Native Americans think of Native food. When Sean and Tashia and another chef on the team, Brian, when they serve these ancient corns and squash to community members, they get a lot of people asking, where's the fry bread? Often, yeah. Yeah, we do. And we have to explain to them what the point of view that we have and what we're focused on. People are slowly catching on. Um, presenting these different foods beyond fry bread. Fry bread is just what it sounds like. It's literally a white bread that's fried. You'll find it at any powwow or Native American festival. But it's actually kind of controversial. Crystal Echohawk, for instance, is not a fan. And we really need to look at, at eradicating these uh, many of these foods out of the Native American diet because they're not traditional. Fry bread is mm-hmm. not a traditional food. Diane, on the other hand, thinks fry bread still has a place in Native American cuisine. If fry bread helped people survive. So, you know, I I have to we have to feel grateful to the fact that fry bread was there when people had very little to eat. Personally, I love fry bread, you know, at a powwow. But like any food, it has to be within the context of uh, an overall healthy diet. Still, despite these changing palates and expectations, everyone we spoke to agrees. Once people try these traditional foods and forgotten flavors, they love them. When we were eating turkey and drinking cedar tea with Brian and Tashia, they just served exactly the same dishes to some elders the night before. The elders, they loved it. Do you see from people when you kind of bring some of these foods back? It's just on their faces, like, you know, (laughs) and they start eating faster and big eyes. That's why the education part of what the farms do is so crucial. Diane and Rebecca both told us that they develop recipes on site to figure out, say, which corn varieties are good for flour, which are best for hominy. They teach cooking classes to the elders and maybe even more importantly to the kids. We've got the cookbook, we've got the community gardens, we've got our youth programs. Feed them, let them experience those those tastes, um, let them feel how their body feels afterwards. That part, how their body feels afterwards, Diane's talking about avoiding the kinds of sugar crashes that are a precursor to diabetes. She's seen so many members of her own family and her community suffer from the disease, and she doesn't want to see that happen anymore. But can returning to a more traditional diet, however delicious it is, can that make a difference to diabetes levels in the Native community? That's coming up after the break. Whether or not eating a Native diet can help make a difference to diabetes levels in the Native community, that's just what Tiffany Beckman wants to find out. She's an endocrinologist in Minneapolis and a member of the Leech Lake Band Ojibwe. Well, I think as a kid, I was just seeing a lot of people that were sick, you know, in my family, and it bothered me. And so that's how I ended up going into medicine. And then um, endocrinology, you know, is my subspecialty in general medicine. And I ended up going into that because I was at an Association of American Indian Physicians meeting when I was a student. And I remember hearing people talking in the front seat of the car about the diabetes epidemic in in our American Indian population. And I I remember them saying, well, what are we going to do? And they were really seriously talking about it. You know, what should we do? And they didn't have clear answers. And, And so there was that that discussion, but then I remember asking if we had um, 
an American Indian endocrinologist within the society. And they said no. And so I thought, well, gee, that seems terrible. How, why don't we have a specialist who can address the, the issues? Today, Tiffany is the first and only American Indian adult endocrinologist, at least that she knows of. I have this molecular like endocrinology background, you know, that can be exceedingly boring for many people, myself included sometimes. And then I have the other part of me that's the public health part. You know, I have a master's of public health, and I'd say that's what really defines me and my motivations and what I do. The endocrine, you know, certifications and the credentials, I only got those so that I could speak the language and be a translator for a lot of Native people and, and have that expertise be able to say to some of some of my colleagues at other universities, say, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I beg to differ. You know, I really don't want, I don't think we should be giving pills for these diseases. I think we should be doing X, Y, and Z, lifestyle, wellness, food activity, and specifically these foods. Tiffany says that the extraordinarily high rates of diabetes aren't just because of bad diets. Native Americans are genetically predisposed to these types of diseases. And so the Western diet triggers diabetes in Native communities even more than in others. Tiffany thinks that the solution is a return to the Native diet. This is still a hypothesis. Based on her training as an endocrinologist, it makes sense. If you look back at the ancestral diet of American Indians, it was largely more protein-based than today's diet. And as an endocrinologist, I know that protein modulates gluconeogenesis, the production of of sugar by the liver. She's looked at studies that evaluated how, for male veterans with type 2 diabetes, eating a higher protein diet could modulate their blood sugar levels. It seemed to work. So I take that work and sort of extrapolate it to our American Indian population, and I look at us and I say, gee whiz, we could really benefit from that, especially since our ancestral diet matched that. Meanwhile, Diane told us that there have been some intriguing studies of the nutritional content of native crops. So one of the things we learned while partnering with the University of Minnesota, um, another professor who's been a a longtime partner, Craig Hassel, helped us do some uh, nutrition testing on these seeds. And what we found in the beans and the... um, well, the beans were extremely high in antioxidants. The corn was much higher in protein. And just in general, when compared to market varieties, these old seeds, because they haven't been manipulated for whatever reason, they maintain that original nutritional value that was so important to our ancestors. There hasn't yet been any study on whether a traditional native diet can help combat diabetes and heart disease. That work needs to be done. And Tiffany wants to spend the rest of her her career on it. Right now, she's in the middle of planning a study on the native diet and how it can modulate blood sugars. And I have been sitting on it for like a decade, and I think that the communities are ripe and ready for it now. We have enough um, people on the ground and enough people in the right places now doing things. So I think it's going to be the perfect time to sort of launch it. Just that morning, one of the folks in her lab sent a month's meal plan to review. It incorporates a lot of the foods we've already described, native squash, corn and beans, turkey. Uh, We didn't talk about buffalo yet, but that would be a critical piece because I'm looking at increasing the concentration of omega-3 fatty acids in there. And there are certain ways you have to do that, as you guys know. And so that would be one way. Um, Venison, lean meat, salmon, wild rice, berries, sort of returning to an ancestral diet, but doing it in a way where the macronutrients are a certain way and the micronutrients are a certain way. And so 
without giving away too much of it. <laughs> That's what I'll say. So the plan is Tiffany will get her Native American research subjects eating this diet, and then she'll study how it affects them. But I would like to look at some markers in the blood and, and see sort of the diet's effect on some of the inflammatory mediators and things. So it wouldn't just be looking at blood sugars and diabetes and cholesterol and classic metabolic markers like waist-hip ratio and blood pressure and things like that. I think we should have some secondary outcomes. And then I suppose specific AIM-1 would focus on some neuroimaging and looking at maybe pre and post. Well, because you'd want to sort of look at how being on a healthy meal plan changes brain activation, right? Because it does. It will. I know it will. So what we would hope to do is dampen some of the overactive reward pathways in the brain in folks and get them acclimated to a healthy diet and then sort of show, hey, look, your cravings went down for these foods. Tiffany is planning on rolling out her study this fall. She hopes to finally produce the science on what she understands as an endocrinologist. It makes scientific sense to her that a native diet would help combat diabetes and heart disease. Now she has to prove it. But this movement to reintroduce native cuisine, it's about more than blood sugar levels and diabetes, as important as those issues are. Absolutely. And that's very much what feeding ourselves is, is about. In the Feeding Ourselves report, Crystal points out that Native Americans are supposed to be a sovereign people and that regaining the ability to feed themselves will go a long way to restoring that sense of sovereignty. All of this, the health benefits, the food sovereignty, the flavors of their ancestors, the environmental benefits of traditional growing techniques like the Three Sisters, that all inspired chef Sean Sherman and his dream of opening a local all-Native American cuisine restaurant. Um, I just see immense benefit for people embracing the indigenous culture of their regions. But Sean had a problem. There is no Joy of Native American Cooking cookbook he could go to and find recipes in. He's had to do a lot of detective work. So I started just researching all sorts of different various texts, from, from ethnobotanical texts to archaeological texts to historical texts, and you know, really looking at any first contact texts that were out there, um, talking with any of the elders that I could find that might have any food memories, and kind of just really trying to see what was traditional by brushing away anything that looked like it was influenced by European um, influences or Asian influence or any place outside of the region I was studying. So really just looking all over the place, but it was really kind of like taking a big broken pot and slowly piecing it back together until I started to see a bigger picture of it. The dishes Sean's creating might not be the exact same ones his ancestors ate, but he thinks they share the same inspiration. Because it is just real basic, so we're just using some simple flavors that are around us. So a lot of these plates that we design, you know, they are extremely hyper-local, and you can find almost every ingredient just like basically walking around a lake in northern Minnesota or on the Dakota Plains. So we might have, for example, a dish that consists of some wild rice and some uh, wild rosehip and some tamarack and some walleye um, or some hopness, which is like a, uh, it's a kind of like a wild potato. So like all these flavors you can find just walking around the forest um, in a certain particular area. So we just really kind of design these flavors that grow well together and are together. So it's kind of mimicking, like putting myself in a box. You know, if I was here 200 years ago um, and I had cooking skills 
but I just you know, wanted to create food with you know the food that's directly around me. Like, what can I use? Like, how can I build these plates? And we do have to, of course, grow and create as we move forward, but that's kind of the fun of being in culinary too. So we always get to explore new ways of kind of mixing these flavors as we move forward. Sean has been enormously successful at getting his first restaurant funded. Now he's working on opening it. We heard the same theme in all of our interviews. This movement is really just beginning, and not just in Minnesota, but around the country. Diane and Rebecca need more money to expand the farms, to grow out the seeds and study them, and to expand the education activities. Tiffany is writing a grant to get her study funded. And Crystal pointed out that there is still a lot of government policy changes needed to actually get the food that Diane and Rebecca grow into the mouths of the people who need it most. There are a lot of challenges, but everyone we spoke to is dreaming big. So how do we create a, you know, a local tribal economy, um, wherever we might be talking about, that is really about where people are accessing food produced from their own food system. So what we'd like to do is, is to really be growing out a lot more of these seeds and providing them both as seeds for people's gardens, but also as food so that you could buy a Dakota flour, for example, um, for baking with, or you could get uh, the hominy, you could get these foods. Um, The beans, beans are fantastic. So that's our goal, is to be able to provide more of these foods back to the the native community in the Twin Cities. And we're hoping that this will be a flagship restaurant that we're hoping to be able to build more of to help other areas, you know, have access to this cool indigenous food in their regions. We're just hoping to help continue to, you know, push and help this movement of revitalizing Native American foods into the modern world. Well, if all that came to fruition, you'd have more people around the table because you would have kids and parents and grandparents and other community members and extended family all working together to actually get the food and get it ready and be involved in the whole process. And then they would sort of take ownership of it and take an interest in it. So they would see the the value of the food and sort of the, the sacredness of it too, because they'd understand, oh, the plants, you know, they're beautiful. And they develop a relationship with them and kind of kind of feel that when they sit down, you know, to offer thanks and to enjoy it. If you, like me, are American and will soon be eating Thanksgiving dinner with your family, think about the turkey and the corn and the cranberries and the wild rice. Those are all traditional Native foods, just the foods that are part of this rebirth of Native American cuisine. And that's something we should all be giving thanks for, while of course not forgetting the history that's wrapped up in their stories. We promised you an update as part of this Encore presentation, and it's an exciting one. Not only has Sean Sherman opened his restaurant, it's called Awamni and it's located in downtown Minneapolis, but also it just this year won the James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant, which is amazing. And of course, he sources a bunch of his food from Dreams of Wild Health. Definitely one to visit if you're in town. Tiffany Beckman has wrapped up her initial studies on diabetes and hypertension and the native diet. She hasn't published those results yet. Perhaps unsurprisingly, she pivoted during the pandemic to studying COVID in the native community. But in addition to those studies, she has new studies underway on American, Indian, and Alaska native health disparities. Keep an eye out. Thanks so much to Rebecca Yoshino and Diane Wilson, who showed us around their farms. You can learn more about their farms and the projects going on there at our website, gastropod.com. 
Thanks also to the sous chef team, Sean Sherman, Dana Thompson, Brian, and Tashia. Thanks to Crystal Echohawk of Echohawk Consulting. We have a link to her report, Feeding Ourselves, on our website. And thanks to Tiffany Beckman, the first Native American adult endocrinologist. She hopes there will be many more. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new celebratory episode, perfect for the holiday season. Till then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.